Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Jared, I use that one? Jared has always lived in his head. He thinks, and he thinks, and he thinks some more. And the rapid pace of Jared's thought really helped him in school. School came pretty easily to him because he could think a lot and always did. Socializing didn't help so much, but he got by. But he thought and he thought, lived a little bit in his head. So he graduates with honors from high school, from college. He gets a nice job in accounting. Things are going well for him. Jared had grown up in the church. His parents were believers. But he had sort of wandered away from that or really not thought much about that until he found a good church, started attending, got connected with a Bible study, had a lot of people about his age who were fully committed followers of Jesus Christ. And as he was there, he either came to Christ for the first time or was reawakened in it. And he himself, with a great zeal, threw himself into the Christian life as a sort of college career, young adult, single guy. He made an incredible amount of progress and growth, uh, enough that people really noticed, like, wow, he is on fire for the Lord, and in a very short period of time. But then Jared experienced really just the one major problem in this season of his life, <coughs> sticky thoughts. The sticky thoughts started in Jared's morning devotional time, when the thought came to his mind. You should kneel when you pray. Good thought. Reverence God. Okay, so Jared knelt down to pray. But being a Westerner, he's not used to kneeling. And his knees hurt. His back hurts. He's distracted. He says, fine, you know what? For now, I'm just going to sit and pray. So he tries to sit to pray. But now there's a sticky thought lodged inside his head. He can't pray. You can't pray unless you kneel. And it stays with him. And now he has to kneel to pray. But when he kneels, it's miserable. And when he sits, it's miserable. And he feels like there's nothing he can do. So it starts there. And it's a bit flustering for him. Okay, moves on. Then he's doing his Bible reading. And to be honest, sometimes he daydreams just a little bit in his Bible reading. He might miss a verse or two. In the past, he just keep reading on, but now all of a sudden, in his mind comes the sticky thought, go back and read that verse until you really understand it. Again, that's not a bad thing. So he goes back, but it's starting to happen so frequently. He literally can't keep reading. He has to go back and reread. So he's rereading and rereading and rereading and praying on his knees. So it's affecting his devotional life. Then he sees it spreading into his relationships with others in the church. He begins to scrutinize everything he says to other Christians. And so it becomes really stressful just to talk to Christians because he's scrutinizing after the fact, thinking about, did I say anything that could tempt people to sin? Did I say anything uncharitable? Did I say anything doctrinally wrong? And he thinks and thinks and thinks until he finds something and has to go back to the person and ask their forgiveness. Again, it's a good thing. But it begins to happen week after week after week. He doesn't even want to be with believers anymore because it's becoming so embarrassing to ask forgiveness of everyone all the time. 
In evangelism, these sticky thoughts appear in that he'll just be walking in the grocery store and suddenly the thought happens, go to that stranger and share the gospel now. And he doesn't know if that's a prompting of the Holy Spirit or what that may be. He doesn't want to quench the Holy Spirit, so sometimes he'll go and share. Oh, no sense of joy, just duty, get it done and relief. Other times he just won't do it and then he's left with a sense of immense guilt. These sticky thoughts are taking over his life. And he thinks to himself, is this really what the Christian life is supposed to be? Full of guilt and misery and sticky thoughts and just doing what I have to do because it's my duty and to get the guilt off my shoulders. Our question is, is there hope for Jared? The argument of this class is that there's hope for Jared and all the Jareds and everyone we talk about. It's in all ethical issues or all issues of the Christian life, there is hope. You are never stuck. And the reason you are never stuck is not because you, by your own virtue, can overcome your issues. It is because you serve a very great, immense God. And part of the way we get unstuck, maybe the most essential way we get unstuck, is by coming to know God himself more. So what we're going to do today is what we do every week in this class. We're beginning with that bit of a story. We'll return to Jared at the end. What we want to do now is consider something that I think would be most helpful for Jared and hopefully for you, and that is this attribute of God, his mercy. Today we're talking about God's mercy, your rest. God's mercy, your rest. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about the mercy of God, and just briefly at the end we'll turn to see how that impacts you being able to rest <laughs> this Memorial Day weekend and all your life as a Christian, and Jared as well. So let's get into the mercy of God. What is God's mercy? We're going to start with a definition, like we always do. You're probably expecting Grudem, because I always quote him, but for variety, I'm going to actually use Burkhoff. Here's Burkhoff's definition of the mercy of God. It may be defined as the goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, irrespective of their deserts, not like chocolate cake, what you deserve, so it doesn't matter what you deserve. The goodness or love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress, despite what you may deserve. Notice that it says it's the goodness or love of God shown to a particular group of people. It's important to note that mercy is a subcategory of something we've already talked about. We have talked about the goodness of God. Mercy fits under the goodness of God. It's really just one way God's goodness shows itself. So now I am going to slip Wayne Grudem in here because he just has good definitions. He says it this way, God's mercy means God's goodness toward those in misery and distress. So we are talking about God's goodness, His good, benevolent, kind heart, when it comes across people, or I guess you could say angels, but we're going to say in this case it comes across people who are in misery. When God encounters creatures consciously in misery, what comes out of God's heart towards such creatures? The biblical teaching is mercy. Here's a proof text, if you will, as we get started. How do we know this is true? 
you might be aware that one of the most important, let's call it a creed, of Old Testament Israel is found when Moses was on Mount Sinai. It was a blazing mountain. He goes up, gets the Ten Commandments, but more happens on that mountain while he's there. One of the significant things is Moses cries out to God, show me your glory. And God tells him, if you remember, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you and declare my name. And so he hides Moses over here, covers him up so he doesn't die. If he sees God directly, he'll die. And what we assume is him causing his goodness to pass in front of Moses includes him just declaring who he is. His name is who he is. He declares who he is. That's part of his goodness. And how does he do that? Exodus 34, 6, here's what God says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed this. The Lord, the Lord, it's his covenant name. And now he describes himself. A God merciful. He says more than that, but that's the first thing he says. A God merciful. This is a creed picked up and quoted later in the Psalms and elsewhere. It's very important and central to Israelite belief. And the first attribute given when God causes his goodness to pass by, I am a God who is merciful. Then he lists other evidences of God's goodness, gracious, slow to anger, that's his patience, his forbearance. Those are all parts of his goodness. But right here, the very first is merciful. God is merciful. All right, so there's the definition and a proof of it. Now we get into more of an explanation. What does it mean that God's a God of mercy? Like you see in the definition, this means God's goodness and its focus on a particular group of people. And hooray, it's you, <laughs> it's all of us. It's those who are in distress or those who are in misery. You can see this in a verse like 2 Samuel 24, 14. David had taken a census of the people. It was a sin. God said, I'm going to judge you through the prophet Gad. And David said to Gad, I'm in great distress. Okay, so here's a person. David. And now he's in distress. And he says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord because his mercy is great. Why would distressed David want to fall into God's hand? Because David knows when a person in distress like David is, is encountered by God, God expresses goodness. That's his mercy. Now, God is merciful to us in our distress, but you say, what distresses, what agonies are we talking about here? I think we can put them into two kinds. God feels a goodness in his heart toward you, mercy in his heart toward you, when you are distressed because of, number one, out, we'll call it outward suffering, or suffering that comes from your circumstances. Some of you right now, that's you. That's what you were thinking when you were driving here from your home. You were thinking about the very difficult circumstance, getting to the end of the month. Maybe it's your bank account. Maybe it's your relationships. And you are feeling a sort of suffering in yourself. And you might wonder, what does God think about you? If God's merciful, he feels a goodness toward you. He feels a goodness toward you partly because you are feeling pinched by your circumstances. Think of in Matthew 9, 27, the two blind men in Jericho are crying out to Jesus as he's passing by. 
As Jesus passed on, two blind men followed him and they cried aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Now they could have said, Love us, son of David, or be gracious to us, son of David. And those would be fair, but they're very specific. What they need is mercy. Mercy is God's goodness when it encounters suffering. And here these two men have a great trial in the ancient world. They are blind. There's no braille. There's no help when you have this disability. So they are probably mostly unemployable, very difficult. And so they cry out for mercy. Jesus, think about us in this hard circumstance. And Jesus does, and he heals them. So some of your distress comes from the suffering of your circumstances. You have an illness. God doesn't discard you and leave you. Sometimes you get sick, you get isolated, and other people stop reaching out like they should. You become lonely. That can be a very painful experience. But we know if God is merciful, it's just the opposite with God. That his goodness toward you, the expressions of it actually increase when you are feeling distress because he feels a mercy toward you. He's more attentive, if we're humanly speaking, can't be more attentive, but the expressions of it tend to be clearer. So you may be distressed because of suffering. You may be distressed because of sin. Here's Luke 18, 13. Jesus was telling a parable about a Pharisee, religious leader. He's got it all together and a tax collector and they're both praying in the temple. Jesus said the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven. Do any of you feel that way this morning? You sinned bad this week. You blew up on someone in your family. You did something you don't want anyone to know. You struggled this week quite a bit and you don't even feel like lifting your eyes to heaven. Because you're afraid of God's displeasure. Well, God is displeased with sin. But what is his attitude toward you? Here's what the tax collector, who's beating his chest, he's looking down, he knows his sin. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What's causing him distress? Because he's poor? No. Probably his problem is he's rich because he's been exploiting people, so that's his sin. It's not because he's poor. It's not an illness. It's not a circumstance. Everything in his life might look like it's going just fine, but he's saying, I'm a sinner. He's aware of his own sin before God. And that's, if you know that feeling, that causes an immense distress within yourself. And you wonder, what does God think of me? I'm looking down. I don't deserve to look up at a holy God. I'm a man of unclean lips and a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the king of glory. Woe, woe to me. Jesus ends that parable by saying, that man who said, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner, that's the man who went to his house justified in the sight of God. That means God had mercy on him, a sinner. Why? God hates sin. Why would, he have Why would there be any goodness toward this very filthy, sinful person who's exploited others, abusive exploitation of those who have no power against him, probably his sins, and then other things. Why would God demonstrate any goodness to him? Because out of God's heart, out of his character, he has a disposition of mercy toward those in distress. Of course, if this tax collector didn't feel any distress about his sin, then he has God's opposition. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace and mercy to the humble. It's the distress he's feeling. So if you feel an agony in yourself, even as a Christian, over the sins that you wrestle with, 
Oddly enough, although the sins are bad, keep wrestling with them, put them to death by the Spirit, but oddly enough, that internal agony you feel is one of the things that elicits God's manifestations or displays of His goodness to you. You think it's going to turn him away from you. He doesn't want anything to do with you. You don't even want anything to do with you. But it's actually just the reverse. With a humble heart before God, God has mercy on your, even your internal agonizing distress. It's what it means that God is merciful. This is different than sometimes with each other. We're not merciful. And that's why over and over scripture teaches us you've received mercy, show mercy. But it's not always that way. So you might be struggling in sin, and you struggle in sin, and you struggle in sin, and someone's trying to help you with that, but you just keep struggling. Eventually, they just get fed up. It's one thing to say, like, I need to focus my energies elsewhere. That's, that's fine and reasonable. But sometimes, let's be honest, we just get fed up that you're struggling, and you're still struggling. <laughs> like, get, it's taking a lot of my time. Get over this. But God's not like that. God is not like that. God is merciful. For so long as we experience that internal agonizing over sin, for just as long God expresses the goodness of his mercy toward us. Now, just as an interesting side point and some food for your thought, Christians have thought about this for 2,000 years with different conclusions, but it's an interesting thought. Mercy is a unique part of God's goodness because... Other elements of God's goodness, not all but most of them, would be clear before there was ever a creation. So in eternity past, when you had only the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, would you see goodness being manifested one to the other? You certainly would. You certainly would see this kindness, this love, this affection. Mercy is something that can only be shown in an imperfect, fallen, broken world. It's only possible after the fall. In Genesis 1, when God created the world, after he made it, he said it's very good. And when you have a world like that, that's very good, both before creation and then that very beginning of creation, if it's very good, if it's free of suffering and free of sin, then God has still everything inside himself that would be merciful, but there's no way for him to display his mercy. We know that the angels who fell were not granted mercy in the way that people are. God has his purposes in that. So before the fall, there was no clear display of God's mercy. Now because of this, there's a Latin phrase. It traces all the way back to Augustine in the 400s, a very important church father. He used this phrase, and people have thought about it in reference to God's mercy. It's the phrase, Felix culpa. Some of you know Felix as a name, Felix the cat, whatever. That's a Latin word that means either happy or fortunate, blessed, some positive connotation to it. Felix. Uh, Our daughter is Felicity, which is a feminine version of that. It's the idea of happiness. Felix, but that's describing culpa. So it's something blessed and fortunate, hooray. What's culpa? Fall or fault, or failure. It's referring to man's plunge into sin in the garden. Now, we're not saying that was good. No one's saying that was good in itself. It was very evil. Eve ate the fruit. Now, all your suffering, thanks, Eve. (laughs) You would have done it too. But it's not good in itself. Why did Augustine then say that culpa, 
that fault, that fall of mankind into sin? What's Felix about it? Why is there any sense of blessedness about it at all? And what Augustine was getting at is, although in itself it's horrible, evil, despicable to rebel against God, there's nothing good in itself, yet without that, we would never have seen this truth about the character of God. This beauty would always have been latent or hidden within the nature of God. We wouldn't have seen it. We would not have seen his mercy. Audrey Assad, um, I can't vouch for her. I don't follow her and stuff. She's a Roman Catholic musician. Early on, maybe 10 years ago, she had some albums I liked. One was called Fortunate Fall meaning Felix Culpa. One of her songs on there is Felix Culpa. She is Catholic, but there were some very beautiful songs on there, and I think it was the opening one called Fortunate Fall. She sings Fortunate Fall that gained for us so great a Redeemer. So God's mercy, the salvific, redemptive, the redemption that Jesus brought into the world by his death on the cross, everything we gather on Sunday to worship in God, these things would have been hidden without the fall. So we're not saying the fall was good. It was not good. But we can almost say with Augustine, Felix Culpa in the sense that now we have the opportunity to have this Sunday school class, which we could not have had before, and to marvel at the rich mercy of God. Now there's one more question, maybe two more questions here about God's mercy. This one is maybe the most practically important, but it's challenging. Does God's mercy toward you involve him feeling an emotion about you? When I feel mercy or pity or compassion towards someone who's suffering, I'm moved. Sometimes I'll cry or I'll just feel a burning in my stomach. In fact, the New Testament language for compassion, splunknoise, refers to your intestines. It refers to your internal organs because when you feel compassion towards someone, there's a warmth that you feel here. It's an emotion. It has a bodily effect that goes with it or cause or effect. I don't know how that works, but it attends it. God doesn't have intestines, and yet that same word is used in reference to God in some ways. So when we're saying that God feels mercy toward you, you're suffering, you're there in agony, God seems far away, you're weeping over your sin, or you've lost a loved one, you're broken, and you want to know, what does God think about me? And we say, well, God expresses goodness toward you, and you say, well, what does that mean? Does he care? And part of what you're thinking when you ask the question, does he care that I'm suffering, is you are wondering, does he feel something toward me? Is God back here, cold and stiff, simply moving the chess pieces of my life to bring about some ultimate good end, but he doesn't really care? Or does he feel something? Now, that's a hard question. That's a hard question. It's another thing that's been debated for 2,000 years, so we're not going to perfectly figure this out. It's called impassibility. It's just a question of does God experience emotions, and if so, how? But it's really important if you're thinking of mercy or compassion or pity, because when we feel that, we feel emotion. It's kind of essential to it. If you don't feel anything, you're not really being merciful. Does God feel anything? Let me just make these observations. Number one, think of God the Father. When you read the Old Testament, many, 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 many times, God is presented to us as feeling lots of things. 
God is not presented in the Old Testament as cold, stoic, and unfeeling. Now, you can get into the question of, well, is it an anthropomorphism or an anthropopathism where it's just using what we're used to to help us understand something about God that we don't understand? Well, it certainly is. God doesn't have intestines. God doesn't have the sort of neurological things happening because he doesn't have a physical brain that we feel when we have emotion. So we can say God's emotions are different from ours, certainly. They're not identical. You and I get carried away by our emotions. We get angry and we lose control, etc. Never with God. Never with God. But we need to say that when you read the Old Testament and the New and you see God presented, not like once or twice, but over and over and over presented as feeling compassion or anger or whatever, but in this case, merciful, piteous compassion. Like here, Isaiah 61.15 speaks of, referring to God, the stirring of your inner parts and your compassion. God doesn't have inner parts. That's referring to my intestines and stuff. God doesn't have that. Isaiah knew that. So there is some difference between God's emotion and your emotion. You feel a pity and water wells up in your eyeballs. It's a weird thing. We're used to it now, you know, but... God made that happen. So water's welling up and goes down your face. Never happens with God the Father. He doesn't have a face. He doesn't have eyeballs. He doesn't have water coming down. So his emotion's different. But this is something I do want to point out to you. Do not, therefore, think that you have real emotions, real mercy, real pity. And God just pretends like he does, but he really doesn't. He's just borrowing our language and pretending like, oh, I wish I could have pity, but I can't. It's not like that. We were made in God's image. So our emotions, which are different than God's, are the shadow. His aren't the shadow. His are the substance. So whatever emotion is in God when he feels, can we use that word? I don't know. I'm going to use it. When he feels emotion of pity toward you and your suffering, it's more real than yours. <laughs> it's different. It's not carried away by it. Not physical. Okay. But it's more real than yours. I know this gets into some lofty stuff, but I do think it's important for all of us when you are suffering and God seems far away, you don't want to have thoughts of God, which are totally removed from scripture. You think, well, he's just got good purposes and he's just moving the chess pieces. He's just manipulating everything to a good end and I trust him in an almost analytic, scientific way, according to his wisdom. God is wise, but he's also merciful, isn't he? And it means something. It means that God really cares. He cares about you. When you were alone in your room, back in college, or this week, or whenever, and you were suffering, and you were calling out to God, and he didn't seem to be there, and he didn't end the hard circumstance, or he didn't alleviate the suffering immediately, and you're thinking, God, do you care? The biblical teaching is, yes, God cares. I think to help us understand that, because it is hard. God is so different from us. It's hard to get that into our mind. I think that's part, one part among many of the reasons that we have four Gospels presenting to us Jesus as the incarnate God in human form so that we can look at Jesus, who is God and man, both, 
and we can see true things about God that it's hard for us to comprehend. I think emotion's one of those. Mercy's one of those. So what do you see when you look at Jesus during his earthly life? He came to reveal the Father to you. What do you see about the character of Jesus? And you know, probably for you and for most people, the thing you see almost most in Jesus is mercy. Everywhere he goes, he encounters those who are suffering. Sometimes it's physical afflictions or circumstance, loss of loved one with the widow at Nain. Sometimes it's suffering because of their sin. Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinful man. But what does Jesus consistently do when he encounters people's suffering? There's the leper. Nobody else has mercy on that leper. You can't, can't touch him, you're going to get leprosy. There's the leper, and what does Scripture say Jesus did? Moved with compassion. He actually had the physical intestines and moved with compassion. He touches him. And he heals him. He's merciful. So when you take the person Jesus and you take a person suffering and you bring them together, what do you see in Jesus? Consistently, that's one of the things we love about him that draws us to him, even makes unbelievers respect him. Consistently, there's an expression of goodness. There's not a like, oh, get away from that one. I don't want to involve myself in that case. That gets messy. He's right in the messiness of it. And that's to show us that God cares. Here's just one example. Mark 1, 40, 41. A leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. I could be you. Before you knew Christ, you're desperate, calling out to God, God, if you will, if you will, you know, you don't have to. I'm such a worm, you know, but if you will, you can make me clean, kneeling, please. And what are you going to find? It says, moved with pity. Okay, for maybe the two people in here who might call me out about the textual variant there. Some of the texts do say moved with anger. I do think that was a later mistake by a scribe. But moved with pity, assuming that's the right reading, splonknidzomai. Splonknidzois. Splonknidzomai. Moved with pity. Actually in his intestines, you know, because he's a human. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing. I do care. I do feel mercy for you. Be clean. One final question we address before we bring this to an application. To what extent does God show mercy? To what extent? And we're just going to divide it up into two categories. Among those suffering, which is pretty much all humanity, there is a general mercy of God and there is a special mercy of God. A few theologians will do three categories. It gets a little confusing. Let's just do those two. General mercy, broad, special mercy. You can probably guess what they are, but let me just defend them with some scriptures. This would be the general mercy of God. So who does God feel mercy for? Psalm 145.9. The Lord is good, there's his goodness, to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. When I was a child, not yet trusting in Christ, living in Southern California, we had a street, had a cul-de-sac at the end, 
And I distinctly remember there was, I don't know how old I was, but I was walking down to my friend's house who lived on the other end of the cul-de-sac. It was getting dark late at night. And I just remember being terrified because it was getting dark. It's not that long of a walk, but I'm just walking by myself, feeling a real fear. I don't truly know Christ at that point. I'm an unbeliever. I don't, and at that point as I'm walking, I remember praying out to God, God, please protect me. And I distinctly remember, right as I'm praying this, around the corner comes a police car that slowly drives beside me all the way to my friend's house. Now, I was not a believer. I didn't live my life for Christ. I was lost. But God's mercy is over all that he has made. So we can say there is a general mercy that God displays over all. The most famous New Testament example of this is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have to be loving, merciful, kind to people who are bad. Why would I do that? <laughs> because so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven because he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Imagine a world where God so designed the sun that it only shone on righteous people. <laughs> And if you're not righteous or you didn't know Christ, you just, you can never get a tan. You just are living in the dark and you're cold, you know. I guess it'd be a good evangelistic strategy, like literally sunlight. But that's not the way that God did it. Instead, God's son has a general goodness. It generally provides life and growth and sustenance to everybody, even people living in despicable, unspeakable sins. There's a general goodness. Same with the rain. It falls so that Food can grow, and unbelievers who hate God and atheists who deny God are eating food that God causes to grow by sun and rain because God feels a mercy even for them. So this is the general mercy of God. But there is a more concentrated form of God's mercy, and this is his special mercy. And this is what's very dear and sweet to us as believers, is that God feels not just that general mercy for you, but he feels so much more mercy for you than that. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. You remember the beginning of Ephesians 2? Talks about how bad we all were. <laughs> that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we walked according to the course of this world. And we followed Satan. And we were in rebellion against God. Whoa, that's a pretty stark picture. And then verse 4 begins. But God. But God. You know the next part? Being rich in mercy. Maybe if God had just like, if he was poor in mercy, you know, he had just like a little bit of mercy. Say, ah, oh, those of you who haven't been so bad, okay, I accept you. But no, we were so bad and dead, and it's only because God was rich in mercy. He looked on us in our helpless state. He saw us that we were dead, even in rebellion against him. No hope for us, alienated from the life of God, and eternity of hell awaited us. He saw all of that. We didn't probably care. He cared. And in his rich mercy, pours out upon our head manifestations of his goodness, even salvation. And now as a believer, you better expect that continues every day. You might get disgusted with yourself. You might wish you could run away, take a break from yourself. <laughs> Unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. That's not the way God feels toward his people. If you are in agony, then God feels and will display a goodness toward you. 
might not always feel that way. God does feel distant at times, but it's biblically true. So let's wrap this up now. How does the mercy of God apply to you and then to Jared? I want to take one passage and show you. This is Hebrews chapter 4. And I want to talk about verse 16. Here's what it says. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Is anyone here not in a time of need? <laughs> like, life is just so good for you. I mean, you're just, everything's great. I want to be your friend. <laughs> Can I be your friend? It's unlikely. Notice, in time of need, what does that mean? You feel some degree of distress. It's a time of need. I have a need. It could be severe, it could be smaller, whatever it is. And what does this author command you to do? What does scripture say you do? If you have a time of need, if you're in need, what do you do? You Google answers. <laughs> That's what we always do. Google it. Does this lump mean something? You know, Google that. Okay. And you can do that. That's fine. But the ultimate thing we do is, as Christians, I'm in distress. I'm in need. My sin, suffering. We go to the throne of grace. And what do you find at the throne of grace? That means spiritually speaking, you don't have to go somewhere. Spiritually speaking, you approach God in prayer, a heart open to Him. You come to God, focused on Him, spiritually minded, and you're saying, I need help. And it says if you go there, notice, it's not a throne of wrath. It is for lost people, not for you. It's not a throne of utter disappointment with how lousy of a Christian you've been. <laughs> Not there in the Greek or the English or anything. It is a throne of grace. Goodness, welcoming you in. And what do you find when you get there? You go to the throne of grace. Oh, mercy. You find mercy. You find that God's heart towards you is one welcoming you in, not pushing you away. It's welcoming you in, saying, I want to do you good. I want to help you in your time of need like a shepherd. I'm going to help you. This is the part that's probably the hardest in this whole command. Because we will pray, you know. But notice what it says. With confidence. You will not approach God with confidence. And you will not live your life with confidence before Him of any kind. Unless you really believe He sits on a throne of grace and mercy. Unless you believe that God is merciful. You might go to Him, you know, like, I got nowhere else to go. <laughs> But it says with confidence. And it says, let us then. The then is pointing back to the fact that Jesus is a sympathetic, merciful high priest. He understands what you're going through. And he walks with you. He brings you to the throne of grace. Says, here, come. You'll find what you need right here. So go with confidence because you're going to find like the prodigal's father. He's not going to say, oh, lock the doors. My lousy son's on his way. Instead, he runs out to get you. Like, why have you not been praying? Why have you been so far away? Like, come in. I'm going to help you. Doesn't mean he's going to get you out of your hard circumstance always, but he's going to give you strength for it. There is mercy there. It is a throne of grace. What this gives you in a practical sense as we close is, if you want to find rest for your Christian life, rest for the turmoils that rack you, 
rest when you are wrestling with your own ongoing struggles against sin in the flesh. If you don't want to be paralyzed with fear, I can't serve, I'll just fail, I'll mess it up and I'll make it bad for everybody. I'm not that kind of Christian, I can't go serve in that way. You want to be freed from that? You want to, confidence? You want to be able to breathe and just try it? and just take the risk, and just serve, and call someone up, text someone up, meet with someone, get coffee with someone, I'm going to encourage them, you want to invest in someone, you want to be freed to do that, then you have to believe that God is not a strict taskmaster, so you hide your talent in a handkerchief, you're so strict and exacting. No, God cares about your sin, He cares it's sinful, but He punished it on Christ, and now He's merciful toward you. So go try, go fail. Confess, come to Christ, forgiveness, and do it with a confidence. That's what God means for your life to be. Returning to Jared, five years have passed. And Jared is not the same Jared you saw in the introduction. He's not the same Jared as five years ago. He still has the sticky thoughts sometimes, but they're very rare now. When they occur, he knows what to do with them. You might wonder, well, what happened? It was not that Jared sat in his room and thought and thought and thought about his sticky thoughts until he overcame them. <laughs> that only gets you more stuck in them. The more he thought about them, the stickier they got. So what helped Jared? It was actually this one question asked to him by his pastor who said, Jared, do you think God wants you to live a miserable life like this? To be honest, it did not help Jared at the time. <laughs> he was too stuck in his thoughts. But as time went on, that and other graces, God really used. He realized it really came down to the character of God. Jared said, do I believe that I follow a God who wants me to live in this utter misery of an exacting law crushing me? Is that Christianity? <laughs> Is that the good news of the gospel? This helped Jared because all the things he felt compelled to do were technically good things. Share the gospel, confess sin. So he couldn't go at them directly, but it was this broader picture of God's merciful. As time passed, he came to see this in Scripture more clearly. God is merciful. God is merciful. It doesn't mean he wouldn't allow hard things in Jared's life, but it meant with the hard things in his life inside himself, God wanted to give him peace. He wanted to give him rest. He wanted to give him the strength to endure hard circumstances well. He didn't want there to be both outward misery and inward misery nonstop. That's not the definition of the Christian life. He did not want Jared to be, or any of his children, to be in an unending state of introspective misery paralyzed by self-analysis. <laughs> which is how Jared had been living. And when he saw this character of God, that that was not who God was, slowly, Jared began to emerge into a newfound Christian freedom. Before, he was terrified to make even the slightest mistake in speech and action. But now, not that he took sin any lighter, but he felt a freedom because of who God is to just get out there and try it. To go out and have Christian conversation, to share the gospel, and sometimes not to share the gospel, which is important for him. He felt this newfound freedom to go out and serve people in new ways that before would have terrified him. And when he failed, 
he would confess it to God and get good counsel from people who knew him well as to whether he needed to confess that to the people also. And sometimes it was yes and sometimes no. But basically the eggshells were gone. He didn't feel like he was walking on them anymore. Today, if you find Jared, he is out serving others. He's really gotten too busy serving others to think as much about himself. That's sort of been what has freed him. He fails, he accepts it, he receives God's mercy, confesses it, he's willing to risk. Mainly, he's willing to rest. He's resting in the mercy of God. He rests himself in this quote, which I have tried with all my might to find the source of this quote. I saw it in a documentary, and it's been maybe the best quote I've ever heard in my life. So if you find it, tell me. From Martin Luther. Maybe. <laughs> it said that Martin Luther said, it is in the nature of true faith that it ventures out upon the forgiving goodness of God, taking nothing with it but a full surrender and a joyful daring. There is hope for Jared. Let's pray. Oh God, I pray that you would give us this sense of a joyful daring. Lord, we are conscientious and circumspect in how we walk. We do not want to sin against you. We revere you, but if you took into account all our sins, or even if we were aware of them, it would crush us. But with you there's forgiveness, so that we're not consumed, so that we can stand. But more than just stand and survive, Lord, with confidence we can serve. We have been set free for the sake of freedom because of your mercy. Only please help us not to use this as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love teach us to serve one another, to risk. And to quote Luther with many caveats, to sin boldly and trust Christ even more boldly. I pray that this would be a church where we feel freedom to try to serve each other even knowing we might fail at it. And we feel freedom to share the gospel because we want to, even if it's scary. And we feel freedom to fail at it without being crushed for days for that. Help us more than anything to see you overseeing this church as a good and a merciful master, as a God who is gracious to us and forgives all our sins, as a God who is aware of our frame and help us to interact with each other with a proper humility, knowing that we are sinners and not surprised when we find it in ourselves, but entrusting our whole souls, our whole selves to you and casting ourselves upon you, God. God, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy on us.